This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today is going to be about the vocation of the laity, and you're going to get two Gospels today. One is the sending of the 70, or the sending of the 72, as it is sometimes numbered, and we'll talk about that. The other one is the Good Samaritan, one of the big parables that everybody loves. But stick around for that, because I think that what I have to share from John Paul II is extremely important, and hopefully will be as meaningful to you as it was for me. But let's start with the Gospel of Luke. We're leaving the Gospel of John and the Feast of Tabernacles behind and entering into Luke territory. The Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to come. And he said to them, The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and salute no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace shall rest upon him and if not, it shall return to you. I remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The Return of the Seventy The Seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. All right, so there it is, the sending of the 70, or as many Bibles have it, the sending of the 72. I like what Father Roger Landry says about the sending of the 72. He thinks of that number as just kind of symbolic instead of a strict counting, a number which basically says Jesus sends everyone who is willing to go to join in the work of evangelization. That's why these 72 are anonymous in the gospel. They aren't making a name for themselves, they're making a name for Jesus. I like another point Father Roger makes about the 72. He says, quote, A short time earlier, Jesus has sent out the twelve apostles, those who would become his first priests. But to share the gospel was not meant to be the task of priests alone. So he appoints 72. 
probably there's 12 apostles and 60 of whom we would call today lay people, and sent them out to the neighboring towns and villages. End quote. So I'm going to stick with Father Landry here and think of them as lay people. In other words, neither vowed religious nor ordained priests. The 72 are sent out in pairs with a simple mission. They are sent out without money, bag, sack, or sandals, and they are to greet no one along the way. This is no pleasure stroll. It's an abandonment to God's providence. When they come to a house, they are to pray for and with those people, serve their needs, and accept their charity. When they are rejected, they are to move on with a parting word of warning. To this day, some religious orders imitate this practice, sending young candidates out two by two for the humbling and liberating experience of throwing yourself at the mercy of God's providence. I know one man who did this with his seminary in his religious order, and he said it changed his life. He can see the differences between the hymn before he did this and the hymn now. He said, you discover that God is really real and really will have your back if you trust in him. He said, you also discover how kind people are. It turns out that people of all kinds are willing to help you far more than you think if you present yourself needing help. At the same time, the story is not naive the way Jesus tells it. He's well aware that not everybody is going to be kindly and loving to the 72 that he sends out. In fact, he says, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Alongside the many people who will respond positively to our message are the hostile. We talked last time about everyone's favorite psalm, Psalm 23, which says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here, Jesus turns that psalm of comfort into a psalm of challenge. Do you really believe that he walks with you through trouble guarding you? Prove it by walking out among wolves to deliver his message, bringing nothing. So it says, carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. As St. Ephraim put it in the 300s, he forbids them to take money for fear that they would be considered businessmen and not announcers. End quote. And too many Christians in our own day look more like businessmen than like humble bringers of God's word, people who have all the accoutrements of wealth. And yet most of us were brought to the faith or strengthened in faith by people who had few material means, but great spiritual resources. That describes the most inspirational saints of all time, from St. Francis of Assisi to Mother Teresa, from Our Lady to Padre Pio. Jesus sends them out two by two to heal the sick and deliver the messages, peace to this household, and the kingdom of God is at hand for you. So these are shorthand for larger messages, but you'll notice that the first message is encouraging and the second is challenging. He wants us to deliver both. People urgently need encouragement. They need to know that God is real and that this will bring them peace of mind, calm their anxieties, and restore confidence in the future. Those consoling words are healings that all of us can perform. But the challenge is needed also. People also need to know that God himself is right now the king of all creation, and that we should all behave accordingly, because he sees us, he cares about us, and he will judge us, and that he has promised that it will be more tolerable for Sodom, which was utterly destroyed, 
than it will be for those who reject him. He tells them the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. What he means is that people are ripe for the picking, if Christians will only do the work. There are many, many people in the world who would be in church discovering peace through prayer and rising to the challenge of being Christ's light in the world right now. Only nobody has invited them. And then there's the detail that the disciples are to greet no one along the way. That means he wants them focused on their mission, shutting out all the distractions that the world offers. They are not to prefer random entertainment or side projects. And they aren't being sent just to hang out either. They have a single-minded purpose, to heal people and deliver Christ's message. They are to accept their charity, and when they are rejected, they are to move on with a parting word of warning. It's a great reminder that our faith journeys have a destination and a timetable. We aren't called to drift through life for God, but to go resolutely to Him, bringing as many people with us as we can gather. Now, this isn't the only kind of faith mission we are called on. That's why I paired this with the Good Samaritan, and Luke did too in the same chapter, because he has a destination and a timeline, but also spent important one-on-one time with the person he reached. I'm not sure what the disciples expected from their two-by-two mission. Probably much what we would. We would think, is it really a good idea to go penniless to people and expect them to feed and house us in return for a challenging message that amounts to an invitation away from their parents' faith and to the cross? Well, apparently it is a good idea because the 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. I've always loved the scene when the 72 return and delightedly boast to Jesus about what happened, and he takes obvious joy in their pride. This puts the lie to the thought that Christians always have to be downcast and shamefaced. There's a holy satisfaction that we can take in serving Jesus well. You can almost feel the high fives when they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. And Jesus says, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Think of that. In Revelations 12, St. John had a vision of Satan refusing to serve the incarnate God born of the Queen of Heaven, and it takes an army of angels to oust him from heaven and throw him down to earth. Now, his refusal to humble himself back then means that random 72 disciples are able to unseat him with ease just by doing what Jesus said and reaching out to their neighbors. It's the same with us. If we are unwilling to humble ourselves and trust God to give us what we need, we will find that we will eventually be humiliated and desperate to get what we want. If we follow the instructions, we will find our stories caught up into God's own story. Whoever they were, their fidelity to God changed the world, and so will ours. Jesus told the 72 all he had done for them. He had made them seemingly immune to demonic forces. Nevertheless, he said, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. With the steady drumbeat of bad news for Christians, victory can seem a long way off. But victory will follow from fidelity. All we have to do is say yes to God. Victory will follow. But let's switch gears for a second and read on in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered right. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This reading starts out with the scholar of the law who totally gets the law right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Exactly, says Jesus. This scribe knows his stuff. But then Jesus tells a story that isn't about knowing your stuff, but about doing what you should. Before we apply this to our times, Notice what the Good Samaritan story meant in the first century. As Jesus tells the story, a man falls victim to robbers on the rough downhill road from Jerusalem to Jericho. People looking for money violated him and didn't care what happened next in his life. They stripped him and beat him and left him half dead. This is exactly the kind of trouble that caused people to travel in caravans back then. A priest and a Levite passed by without helping him. We think of them as haughty, uncaring people. But in the first century context, they could easily have had very good reason not to stop. They may have needed to avoid ritual uncleanliness because of their duties to God and their congregations. Touching a dead person would put a priest out of commission for a week. They also may have feared for their safety. The road to Jericho was notoriously unsafe. Robbers could be lying in wait for someone to stop and help the injured man. Or the supposed victim might even be a robber himself, a decoy placed to attract do-gooders who could themselves be robbed. In the story, the priest, a performer of elaborate prayers and rituals in the temple, does not love his neighbor. The Levite, with his special status from birth and his prominent role in the community, does not love his neighbor. It is the Samaritan traveler who's willing to give the basic care necessary. He loves his neighbor. We can guess that the priest and Levite are like the scholar Jesus tells his parable to. These people know the law, but Jesus puts a priest and a Levite in the story who know the law, but don't do it. Jesus isn't impressed by people who know the right things or are in with the right people. He's impressed by people who do the right things and love the right people, and everyone is the right person. The Samaritan Moved by compassion at the sight, pours oil and wine over the wounds of the victim, bandages him, carries him on his own mount, and pays for him to stay at an inn. 
There are several ways to think of the parable. Applying it to ourselves, we're the Good Samaritan and need to go and do likewise, as Jesus puts it, serving others in crisis. Applying it to the church, all humanity is the victim of the rebellious angels. Christ is the Good Samaritan, and the church is the inn where we recover while we await his second coming. Augustine says to see yourself as the victim. He says, quote, Robbers left you half dead on the road, and you have been found lying there by the passing and kindly Samaritan. Wine and oil have been poured on you. You have received the sacrament of the only begotten Son. You have been lifted onto his mule. You have believed that Christ became flesh. You have been brought to the inn, and you are being cured in the church. He adds, quote, This is what I too, what all of us are doing. We are performing the duties of the innkeeper. He was told, If you spend any more, I will pay you when I return. Blessed is the innkeeper who can care for another's wounds. Blessed is he to whom Jesus says, Whatever you shall spend over and above, I will repay you. End quote. I love that. But I want to do something here with both these stories, the 72 and the Good Samaritan. Pope John Paul talked about both of them in Denver at the World Youth Day in 1993 in words that changed the church in America. I work at Benedictine College, which was renewed because of people who found their vocations because of these words. The college's students, in fact, consist of children from large families that are large only because John Paul II got so many of us charged up for our faith with these words. But what did he say? We first read them on photocopies of photocopies for years and then went and found them online. I'll read a good deal, but it's still only part of what he said. Quote, At this stage of history, the liberating message of the gospel of life has been put into your hands, and the mission of proclaiming it to the ends of the earth is now passing to your generation. Like the great apostle Paul, you too must feel the full urgency of the task. Woe to me if I do not evangelize. Woe to you if you do not succeed in defending life. The church needs your energies, your enthusiasm, your youthful ideals in order to make the gospel of life penetrate the fabric of society, transforming people's hearts and the structures of society in order to create a civilization of true justice and love. Now, more than ever, in a world that is often without light and without the courage of noble ideals, people need the fresh, vital spirituality of the gospel. Do not be afraid to go out on the streets and into public places like the first apostles who preached Christ and the good news of salvation in the squares of cities, towns, and villages. This is no time to be ashamed of the gospel. It is time to preach it from the rooftops. Do not be afraid to break out of comfortable and routine modes of living in order to take up the challenge of making Christ known in the modern metropolis. It is you who must go out into the byroads and invite everyone you meet to the banquet which God has prepared for his people. The gospel must not be kept hidden because of fear or indifference. It was never meant to be hidden away in private. It must be put on a stand so that people may see its light and give praise to our Heavenly Father. Jesus went in search of the men and women of his time. He engaged them in an open and truthful dialogue, whatever their condition. As the Good Samaritan of the human family, he came close to people to heal them of their sins and of the wounds which life inflicts, and bring them back to the Father's house. Young people of World Youth Day, 
The church asks you to go in the power of the Holy Spirit to those who are near and those who are far away. Share with them the freedom that you have found in Christ. People thirst for genuine inner freedom. They yearn for the life which Christ came to give in abundance. The world at the approach of the new millennium, for which the whole church is preparing, is like a field ready for the harvest. Christ needs laborers ready to work in his vineyard. May you, the Catholic young people of the world, not fail him. In your hands, carry the cross of Christ. On your lips, the words of life. In your hearts, the saving grace of the Lord. End quote. That was in 1993, and it was earth-shattering. I get chills reading it now, and I got chills reading it then. I wasn't at World Youth Day because my daughter Cecilia was being born, but you could feel the energy of those words in gatherings of Catholics of our age for decades afterwards. I've said before what I think was happening here. We talked about Mark's midpoint and how reality is structured like a story because God is the ultimate storyteller, and story structure comes initially from him. I see the three-act story structure in Mark, and I see it in the history of the church. We talked about this a little bit last time. Act 1 is the church rediscovering her faith and triumphing. Act 2 is the rising complications, rising action, rising stakes, and then the climactic problem. You think all is lost and the hero will lose in the three-act structure at the climax. We talked about this stage in the Man Born Blind episode with the nighttime of nihilism falling. In Act 3, what happens in a story is that the hero remembers something she had all the time, picks up the weapon, wields it, and conquers with it. That weapon, I believe, is the laity, and that's what both of our stories are about today. The sending out of the 72 to do what the 12 couldn't do alone, and then the Good Samaritan who comes to the rescue when the priests and religious walk on by. So here is John Paul speaking directly to the laity, to you and me, saying, Rise up, your time has arrived. He literally says, The liberating message of the gospel is now in your hands. It helped a lot that the church followed up on John Paul II's program of evangelization and reaching out to the hurt of the world in the years that followed. He talked about preparing for the year 2000. And he treated the year 2000 as a huge retreat for the whole church to focus on Jesus Christ. In the years leading up to it, the church gave us an examination of conscience that is just as powerful now as it was then. Because the questions were all about the Good Samaritan. The questions were, quote, Which side are you on? Are you someone with a hard heart who ignores the expectations of their neighbor? Or are you someone with a merciful heart? There is no third way. Your choices, your behavior will judge you. Are you like the priest and the Levite, or are you the Samaritan? The simple fact of having passed by will be how they will be judged, and they will be condemned. They have a hard heart. They do not know the merciful heart of their God. End quote. And it ended by asking, who do I pass by? And why do I pass them by? And what's keeping me from loving them? Well, ouch. I pass by so many, don't you? I was reading those excuses that the Levite and the priest might have for passing them by. Oh my gosh, they're exactly our excuses. It might be dangerous for us to help this person. And we all tend to be like the scholar of the law, the priest and the Levite, who want to get credit for knowing everything, but who don't actually do the things they know. 
So let me get really practical here, because I think that the fact that the Holy Spirit influenced these words in the gospel means that they should apply to our lives today. We're sent out like sheep among wolves, but we are also sent to other sheep. I think I called it border collies last time. So Jesus tells us what he told the twelve he sent out in Matthew. At the sight of the crowds, Jesus' heart was moved with pity for them because they were troubled and abandoned like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't this a description of our own neighborhoods? All around us, people are suffering and even dying due to precisely the problems that we uniquely have powerful answers to. So sex and personal identity issues are at crisis levels. STDs are at record highs. We just don't hear about it much anymore. Girls are facing skyrocketing depression with them citing sexual pressure as a major cause. We don't hear about that either. Young people who question their identity aren't culture warriors who need to be attacked, but victims who have lost all the markers of identity we should have given them all along but didn't. But Catholics, in our institutions, in our homes, are doing very little to promote the Church's sexual teachings. There's no reason to be ashamed of the authentic Catholic vision of the human person. We should shout it from the housetops, but we don't. I'm recording this not long after the Dodgers controversy, where the Dodgers and many in the government and the media called heroes, a group that mocks nuns and the crucifix. Everyone took the side of this group because it was Pride Month and they didn't want to look like they were bigoted against gay people. And I get that. I totally understand that. But in the days after the Dodgers event came the news that the Biden administration's own Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration determined that Americans who identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual are far more likely to suffer from depressive episodes and to abuse drugs and are up to six times as likely to attempt suicide. This immediately became a culture war hot potato, which is a shame. I think even the administration took down the study. It's a shame because it's proof positive that people are wounded and hurting. And it leaves you wondering why those promoting the sins that lead to despair and death are out loud and proud, while those promoting the faith feel like we need to crouch in a closet, silent with self-loathing. Or take the problem of poverty. We know beyond a doubt that the major cause of poverty in our time is the breakdown of the family. Tons of research, which actually showed up recently in newspapers from San Antonio to Richmond, shows that men who abandon their responsibility to women and children are the main reason behind the rise in poverty. Churches are materially generous to people in need, but we are far less effective in sharing the church's teachings, which could make huge strides against generational poverty. By teaching why the church's teaching about marriage is empowering and beautiful, we could make a huge difference, but we don't. Or look at crime and depression and anxiety. Communities are fracturing with social isolation on the rise. In 2022, the United States saw the highest rates of deaths of despair ever. These are deaths that are the result of suicide, but also alcoholism and opioid addiction, which amount to slow suicide. Our neighbors are lonely and hurting, and our parishes are not gathering them into Christ's arms. In short, record numbers of people are troubled and abandoned, like sheep without a shepherd, at precisely the time when the church in America has more than 17,000 parishes that could help, spread far and wide, and better, 
we have a highly educated laity who have been told by a Vatican council that we are now the frontline troops in the battle for souls. So why are we doing so little? The gospel explains that, too. The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few, so ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for the harvest, Jesus says. Now, the potential labor force in our parishes is enormous. It's the active labor force that's tiny. And whose fault is that? It could be the parish's fault. The bureaucracy at parishes is often a muddle, as a number of articles have recently pointed out, such that far from being a force for spreading the faith to as many people as possible, many parishes don't even return phone calls when people ask them for the sacraments. But it also could be the lay people's fault. The Catholic faith doesn't thrive apart from a Catholic culture lived in our homes. And all the markers that used to give people a Catholic culture, the five precepts of the church, for starters, have been declining or absent for decades. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter whose fault it is. What is more important is the remedy. And the remedy is to ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers. That means praying for vocations to the priesthood and religious life, yes. But it also means praying for vocations to the active lay life and to the holy married life. But let's return briefly to St. John Paul II's words, because he didn't just say to spread the gospel, he said to spread the gospel of life, and then he said that we will be judged on how we defend life. So I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is even more relevant after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. What if we think of women who are pregnant in difficult circumstances as the victim in this story? Like the guy on the road, in many cases, they too were used by men, then discarded, and many face financial crisis as a result. For them, we have made our whole world like the rough road from Jerusalem to Jericho, where we expect women to be sexually available outside of the protection of marriage and allow men to walk away from the responsibility once women inevitably become pregnant. Corporations that eagerly pay for their abortions make matters worse, Pain to get rid of the child so that nothing will interfere with the worker's hours in the office. So, if abortion-minded women are the victims in this Good Samaritan story, men who use women for sex and corporations who use them for their own profit are the robbers. And who are we? It makes me very sad to say that too often we are the scribe and the priest and the Levite in the story. On the matter of abortion, many of us are experts in God's law. It is crystal clear to us, that an unborn child should never be killed. We are religiously correct on the matter of abortion, all the way, 100%, but not necessarily the great, then help them part. I interviewed women who had had abortions for a news story after Roe v. Wade was overturned. One woman I spoke with said that seeing a priest holding an abortion as murder sign actually made her more likely to have an abortion because it only made the shame of her situation feel overwhelming. On the other hand, the same woman was moved by her sister's Choose Life protest sign and found her greatest healing by finally confessing her sins to a priest. In other words, pro-life messages were only effective for her when she heard them from people who simultaneously believed the truth about the right to life and loved her personally and treated her mercifully. Then, notice what the Good Samaritan in the story offers the victim— costly, lengthy, hands-on help. That kind of personal care is the only form of service that works when you are dealing with a person in crisis. 
Another woman who had an abortion told me that many pregnancy resource centers she called offered her a pro-life message and a list of phone numbers where she could find help. In her desperate state of mind, it was impossible for her to face the work of organizing help from various quarters. So after that call, she headed to the abortion clinic. It was only when a pro-life woman called her and pledged to help her each step of the way sharing the load with her before and after birth that she turned away from abortion. Only real Good Samaritans convert people and save lives. Smart scholars of the law and Levites don't. Now, don't get me wrong. It is absolutely true that pro-abortion voices willfully ignore the many wonderful things the pro-life movement is doing to serve women. It was beautiful back after Roe v. Wade overturned when a pro-abortion journalist tweeted, Dear pro-life friends, what have you personally done to support low-income single mothers? I'll wait, end quote. Well, she got inundated with 13,000 responses listing how people had personally reached out to women and accompanied them, not by giving money to an organization, but by actually accompanying them in their lives. At the same time, it's undeniable that pro-lifers could give more money, offer more hours, make more phone calls, and give more encouragement and more love to women facing difficult circumstances. We not only can do more, but to be authentic followers of Jesus, imitators of the Good Samaritan, worthy of eternal life, we must. You have answered correctly, Jesus is saying to pro-lifers. But now, do this and you will live. And the flip side of that is, you've answered correctly, and if you don't do this, you won't. We Christians are not God's gift to the universe, far from it. We are all slaves of sin, the world's robbers, and only Christ can save us. He is the Good Samaritan who came down from heaven, a stranger in our streets, and gave us costly service to restore us to health, making peace by the blood of his cross. He left us in the hands of the inn, his church, where he pours out the oil and wine of his sacraments for our healing and guards us in his safe house. We serve those who have fallen victim to evil, not because we are better than them, but because we stand together with them in need of a Savior. And speaking of the church, let's close out by returning ever so briefly to that first gospel, because I haven't yet addressed the fact that Jesus sends his 72 out two by two. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We are meant to partner with others in our efforts and do what Jesus teaches. And our efforts alone are not worth very much. When we act with the church, we are part of the great channel of blessings God has prepared for mankind. And I love what Father Hugh Sundemi said to my daughter and her husband at her wedding. Quote, When Jesus sent his apostles to proclaim the good news, he sent them two by two. You are also sent in two by the sacrament of marriage to preach the gospel and bear witness with your lives. I like that way of thinking about my own marriage. We, too, headed out into the great beyond, tiny when compared to the world, but mighty with Christ in the sacrament. Or, if you're not married, you can think of it as two friends. Think of Frodo and Sam. Powers of darkness rule the realm, and the great political rulers are marching out to challenge them. But that's not what defeats them. The big, fiery battles of our day are necessary, but they are also a diversion. The real heroes are two friends, two tiny hobbits, marching like sheep among wolves into the heart of evil to reject it. I love that the Roman Empire gave way to Christians, hobbits of their day, going two by two without money, bag, sack, or sandals. 
we should imitate them. Our world is ruled by a new Rome, an empire of consumerism and relativism, a culture of death. Jesus wants us to go out two by two, reaching the walking wounded in our world with the hope and healing of Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.